What are the implications of the FTC's proposed updates to the endorsement guides? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. When a well-known influencer posts a cooking demonstration using a new non-stick pan and is paid to do so by the manufacturer of the pan, the conventional wisdom in the advertising industry, based on long-standing truth in advertising principles, is that such demonstrations should accurately describe how the product works should not include any unsubstantiated claims, and that there should be a disclosure of the fact that the influencer has been paid to post such a video. While these principles seem simple and reasonable, applying these principles in practice, especially in the fast-changing world of social media, is not so easy. Our main guidance on the applicability of these principles comes from the FTC's endorsement guides, which have been around for almost half a century, since 1975. The guides have gone through one major revision in 2009, and in May of this year, the FTC proposed further updates to the guides. With me to discuss these updates are my partners, Jeff Edelstein and Jesse Brody from Manette's Advertising, Marketing, and Media Practice. Jeff and Jesse, welcome. Hi, Paul. Thanks for inviting me back to the Beyond the Pot again. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here. Well, there's a lot to talk about the proposed updates, but I'd like to focus on just the following elements the updated definitions of endorser and endorsements to include social tags and virtual influencers, the disclosure of material connections and the new definition of clear and conspicuous, and finally, consumer reviews. Jesse, let's start with you first. You work a lot in the social media space. I'd love to hear your views on the FTC's clarification that tags in social media posts are endorsements. That's certainly not a surprise to us, but I think it's particularly interesting how the FTC illustrated this point by updating an existing example in the guides, example five to section 255.0. Can you tell us about this example and what it says about the FTC's position on social media tags? Yeah, absolutely, happy to. So as many of you already know, the guides define an endorsement as any advertising message that consumers are likely to believe reflects the opinions, beliefs, findings, or experience of a party other than the sponsoring advertiser. The FTC has proposed expanding that definition to include not only advertising messages, but clarify that marketing and promotional messages are endorsement as well. And it specifically has called out tags in social media posts to be a form of an endorsement. When a social media user tags a brand in a post, it generally communicates that the poster uses or likes the brand. So the revised definition would also indicate that tags in social media posts can be endorsements. Current example five involves a television advertisement in which a professional golfer implicitly endorses a brand of golf balls by being shown practicing her swing using the balls, even though she says nothing in the ad. The FTC proposed expanding this example to illustrate that the use of the same video footage in a social media post can be an endorsement as long as the endorsed brand is tagged or otherwise readily identifiable by viewers. So does this mean that whenever a brand is tagged, the post should be deemed to be an endorsement that requires a disclosure? I don't believe the FTC is going as far to say that anytime you tag a brand, that post is now an endorsement that requires a disclosure. Keep in mind that there still needs to be a material connection between the endorser and the brand. The individual endorser would need to have received compensation or other considerations, such as a sweepstakes entry, in order to trigger the need for disclosure on the post. 
ultimately, I think this example is going to have a big impact on the fashion industry. And why is that? In many instances, fashion influencers will be wearing a brand's clothes in a story that they're being paid to endorse. But it's not always clearly apparent to the viewer of that story that the influencer is wearing a particular brand's clothing. However, in many instances, the fashion influencer will just tag all the brands they're wearing in that particular video. So viewers can tell what brands those clothes are. Now, it's pretty clear that if the brand provided that outfit to the influencer for free or otherwise paid them to endorse the brand, the simple act of tagging that brand in the post will mean the influencer needs to disclose that the post was sponsored. What's really interesting to me, Jesse, about social tagging by influencers is that there are posts that are specifically required under the influencer's contract with the brand. And then there are posts that the influencers will do outside of the contract, but that may still reference the brand. Influencers post frequently on their channels, something that is expected from their fans and followers. Sometimes they'll tag a brand in these posts, even if they are not required to do so. In many cases, the tag brand might not even find out about it until later. If this happened during the term of the contract and there is a paid relationship between the influencer and the brand, this poses an interesting problem for the brand if there is no disclosure about the relationship. What do you think? It definitely does. It's one of those areas that brands have been struggling with over the course of the last several years, and we're hoping to receive more guidance from the FTC on And I think now it's pretty clear that there are influencers need to disclose those material connections. Right. The challenge is to make sure the influencers know whenever they're tagging the brand they have a relationship with, they need to put a disclosure in the post, even if the post is not a contractually required post. And it's important for the brands to work with influencers to make sure there's an easy way to disclose. Yeah, I think that's why training programs are so important with your influencers to making sure that they understand that these are um, the types of things that can come up when working with a brand. Staying on the topic of endorsers and endorsements, I'd like to talk about the FTC's reference to virtual influencers and fake reviews in the proposed updates. Jeff, since the last time the FTC issued official guidance on endorsements, there has been a a growing use of virtual influencers and reviews that are not provided by real people, like fake reviews. The FTC has taken enforcement actions against companies engaging in such practices and is now proposing to include specific language in the actual endorsement guides to address these issues. Tell us about these proposed updates relating to virtual influencers and fake reviews. The FTC proposed an update to the definition of an endorser to provide that endorser quote, could be or appear to be an individual group or institution, close quote, adding the words appear to be. The FTC said that the expanded definition would make it clear that the guides apply to virtual endorsers, such as computer-generated fictional characters and fabricated endorsers. The FTC also stated that the use by endorsers of fake indicators of social media influence such as fake social media followers, is not itself an endorsement issue, but that it is a deceptive practice for users of social media platforms to purchase or create indicators of social media influence and then use them to misrepresent their influence for a commercial purpose. Jeff, the reference to the use of fake indicators of social media influence relates to a particular enforcement action that the FTC had taken against a company, right? That's correct. The FTC was referring to the FTC versus Davumi case, 
in which uh, it alleged that it's illegal to sell, purchase, or use bots or other fake social media accounts to market goods and services. So the FTC made it clear that it's a deceptive practice to sell or distribute fake indicators to users of social media platforms. The definition of what constitutes an endorsement is important because there are certain requirements that apply to endorsements. For example, and this is probably the most well-known or well-publicized requirement at this point, endorsements should be accompanied by a disclosure of material connection between the endorser and the brand referenced in the endorsement. With social media becoming an indispensable marketing channel, over the years, the FTC has provided additional guidance on what it considers to be a material connection that triggers a disclosure. Jesse, what is the latest guidance on this issue based on the proposed updates? As we all know, disclosure of the material connections between advertisers and endorsers has been the subject of heated debates among all parties, from influencers to advertisers and their agencies, and even employees who have connections to their companies. With the proposed updates, the FTC has attempted to provide some more specific guidance on this issue. Of course, material connections can include a business, family, or personal relationship, monetary payment, the provision of free or discounted products or services to the endorser, including products or services unrelated to the endorsed product, early access to a product, or the possibility of winning a prize, of being paid, or of appearing on a television or another content. In addition to updating the text of Section 255.5, the FTC proposed a number of modifications to the examples, as well as new examples that illustrates the FTC's position on the disclosure of material connections. Additional guidance provided by these updated and new examples are quite helpful in many ways with respect to clarifying when disclosures are required. For example, in new example seven, the FTC clarifies its position on whether a consumer's review of a product after receiving the product for free would constitute an endorsement. Based on this new example, if the consumer received a coupon for a free trial product simply based on her purchase history and the manufacturer did not ask for review, then the consumer's unsolicited review would not be an endorsement. However, if the consumer received the free product as part of a marketing program that periodically provides free products and writing a review is only optional, then the consumer's review would still be an endorsement because of the consumer's connection to the manufacturer's marketing program. I love this example because it provides further guidance for a lot of marketers about when to require or ask for a disclosure. Absolutely. It's interesting. Also, they noted that including incentivized reviews, star ratings, and an average star rating for a product could be deceptive, even if adequate disclosures appear in each incentivized review. So something new that they hadn't discussed previously, but I know a lot of platforms and social media sites use average star ratings and likely include incentivized reviews in them. So that's a practice that's likely going to have to change going forward. Another interesting point that the FTC made in the proposed updates relating to material connection disclosures is the specificity of the disclosure. How specific should the disclosure be? Yeah, so in terms of how specific the disclosure needs to be, a material connection does not need to be disclosed with complete details, but the disclosure must clearly communicate the nature of the connection sufficiently for consumers to evaluate its significance. So it doesn't look like the FTC is taking away our ability to use hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored on social media to disclose a material connection. However, I do believe in many instances where there's more space to make a fuller disclosure, a bit more detail about the material connection should really be given, like providing details on whether the person has been paid to post or if they received the item for free, things like that. 
in addition to further clarifying when a material disclosure should be made. The FTC provided further guidance on how the disclosure should be made by adding a new definition of clear and conspicuous in the proposed updates. Jesse, how would the new guidance on clear and conspicuous disclosure of material connections affect how brands and influencers make the disclosures on some of the social media platforms that are popular with influencers? Is there anything different from the current industry practice? Great question, Poe. The FTC does emphasize the disclosure of material connections must be clear and conspicuous and cross-references to a definition of this phrase in the updated guides. Before we get there, though, I want to quickly note that the FTC also recently indicated that they'll be updating their dot-com disclosure guidelines that goes into much more detail about what constitutes a clear and conspicuous disclosure in a broader context. And so that's something to look forward to looking at in the future. But to start, it's fairly evident from the FTC's proposed updates that the FTC is not impressed with the built-in disclosures offered by the various social media platforms and whether those disclosure tools result in a clear and conspicuous disclosure. And so the proposal makes clear that additional disclosure is needed on top of any functionality offered by the platforms. Also, perhaps stymied by Section 230 immunity for the platforms, the FTC has a new theory. It's warning the platforms that they may be liable for deceptive claims for anything said to brands or influencers about the utility or effectiveness of platform disclosures. It'll be interesting to see how this fight shapes up, but if I'm a social media platform, I'm taking a second look at my built-in disclosure tools to see how we can do better. The FTC also specifically stated in the proposed updates that if the trigger for the disclosure is audible, then the disclosure should also be audible. If the trigger is visual, then the disclosure should be visual. And if the trigger is visual and audible, then the disclosure should be both visual and audible. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think with respect to meeting a clear and conspicuous standard, material connection to disclosures should be both likely to be noticed and easy to understand and a visual disclosure should stand out from other texts. However, it doesn't appear the FTC's intent was to change the rules we know and we've used. But I do have a question about how a disclosure can actually stand out from other words in a tweet. That could be a bit challenging. Otherwise, the FTC's proposed updates incorporate some of the rules we know and love and have been advising clients on for some time, like no disclosures appearing after a read more click, The proposal also reinforces previous staff guidance that with respect to posts on sites such as Instagram stories or TikTok, where the endorsement may be made verbally, any required disclosure must also be verbal. So when you're considering a story where there's both a visual and audible endorsement about a brand, it's pretty clear now that you need to have both an audio and visual disclosure that the post is sponsored. Before we move to another topic, I'd like to note the importance of making sure the disclosure of a material connection is appropriate for the targeted audience. The FTC specifically called out the importance of evaluating the effectiveness of a disclosure in an endorsement that targets a specific audience, such as older adults, from the perspective of the members of that group. Jeff, what did the FTC actually say? Example 10 in section 255.0 involves a television commercial that promotes a smartphone app that purportedly halts cognitive decline. The ad presents multiple endorsements by older senior citizens who are represented as actual consumers who used the app. The ad discloses both by audio and visual means that the persons featured are actually actors. The FTC stated that because the ad is targeted at older consumers, whether the disclosure is clear and conspicuous will be evaluated from the perspective of older consumers, including those with diminished auditory, visual, or cognitive processing abilities. 
What the FTC said here is nothing new, but I find it interesting that the FTC is now proposing to include an example in the guides to illustrate that point. Let's talk about a brand new section on consumer reviews that the FTC introduced. Jeff, you've been following consumer reviews very closely and you've blogged about it as well. What are the key points in the proposed updates? The FTC added a new section on consumer reviews, section 255.2D, which the FTC described as a fundamental principle that was not discussed in the existing guides. This section would state that in procuring, suppressing, boosting, organizing, or editing consumer reviews of their products, advertisers should not take actions that have the effect of distorting or otherwise misrepresenting what consumers think of their products, regardless of whether the reviews are considered endorsements under the guides. The commission included several examples of consumer review practices that may be misleading, such as deleting or not publishing reviews, buying fake reviews, threatening consumers who post negative reviews, and what the FTC called review gating, which means obtaining customer feedback and then sending satisfied and dissatisfied customers down different paths in order to encourage positive reviews and avoid negative reviews. What about the use of star ratings, which is popular with retailers? The FTC warned advertisers not to use star ratings that include incentivized reviews, such as offering to pay consumers to write positive reviews of their products on third-party websites. Going back to the point about review gating, what flexibility do brands have under this new guidance to avoid having to publish reviews that may be inappropriate? The commission noted that in certain circumstances, advertisers can remove or not publish consumer reviews. The FTC stated that sellers are not required to display customer reviews that contain unlawful, harassing, abusive, obscene, vulgar, or sexually explicit content, or content that is inappropriate with respect to gender, sexuality, or ethnicity, or views that the seller reasonably believes are fake. The FTC also stated that sellers are not required to display reviews that are unrelated to their products or services, but that customer service, delivery, returns, and exchanges are related to the seller's products and services and therefore must be displayed. So the key is to establish clear rules for the reviews and post them on the review site. That's correct. Yes. Uh, the FTC said that advertisers and websites you know, can't have criteria for what are appropriate reviews and what are inappropriate reviews, but that those criteria have to be applied uniformly. Jesse, the FTC also clarified its position on third-party websites that include product reviews. What kinds of practices does the FTC consider to be deceptive? Yeah, the, that's right, Poe. The FTC gave us a few new examples and guides that provide an important additional guidance on product reviews. For example, in new example eight regarding a camping goods retailer, the FTC explains how to fairly moderate reviews in line with its new guidance. The one important thing to note in this example is the FTC cautions against labeling a favorable review on a product page as the most helpful review if the advertiser is making the selection of the review to feature. The FTC believes that doing this suggests that it was voted most helpful by consumers visiting the website. This isn't to say that a marketer can't choose to highlight particular reviews on its website, but it shouldn't do so in a manner that otherwise communicates misleading claims. Also, in new example nine regarding paying for reviews, 
The FTC says it's improper to pay consumers to write positive reviews, even if the payment is disclosed. On the other hand, the FTC says that paying consumers to write reviews where there's no requirement for the review to be positive and where the reviewers understood that there were no negative consequences from writing negative reviews is permissible, so long as the payment is disclosed. Importantly, the FTC is doubling down on its position here that payment is always a material connection, even if the reviewer is free to write anything that the reviewer wants. In new example 10, regarding negative reviews, the FTC tells marketers not to threaten consumers who post negative reviews of their products. And then finally, in new example 11, solicited reviews, the FTC says that while it's acceptable for advertisers to invite consumers to post reviews about their products, it's deceptive to only invite satisfied customers to post reviews. It's important to note that these updates are still only proposed at this point, and the FTC will not be issuing the final guides until it has received and processed the public comments that it is currently collecting. With that in mind, what tips do you have for brands at this point while we're waiting for the final guidance? Jeff, let's start with you. Since all five commissioners voted in favor of issuing the proposed revised endorsement guides, it's clear that there is strong support for them by the commission. The FTC will probably make some tweaks in the final version of the guides, but it will most likely be substantially similar to the proposed guides. Therefore, I think it's prudent for advertisers, agencies, social media platforms, and endorsers to take a look at their current business practices in light of the proposed updates and make appropriate changes. And Jesse, what about you? The amendments proposed by the FTC to the endorsement guides clearly represent a broadening of the guides, both in terms of the parties it covers, such as intermediaries, and the prohibited activities. While what they're proposing is already in line with recent enforcement actions and public statements, impacted parties should keep in mind that the FTC appears to be intending to crack down even further on what it views as deceptive practices in the endorsement space particularly, as Jeff said, in light of the unanimous commission approval and the amendments. Advertisers and endorsers that target particular audiences, especially children, should pay particular attention to the proposed changes and ensure that their statements are not deceptive under the new guidance and their disclosures are clear and conspicuous from the target audience's perspective. Companies that collaborate with social media influencers should evaluate whether their relationship is material, and if so, assess their disclosure practices to ensure that they meet the clear and conspicuous standard articulated in the revised guides. Online platforms that solicit consumer reviews or depend upon consumer reviews to promote a product should verify the authenticity of the reviews on their platform and ensure that their platform does not privilege positive reviews or suppress negative ones. Thank you, Jesse and Jeff, for this insightful discussion about the implications of the FTC's proposed amendments to the endorsement guides. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. As shared in today's episode, the proposed updates to the endorsement guides address the evolving use of social media and consumer and product reviews in marketing. Also, the FTC will be holding a public event on October 19th to examine the techniques being used to advertise to children online in all the various digital spaces children frequent. We will be following the developments in that area closely. If you have questions related to the FTC's proposed updates, or if you are any topics you'd like us to explore on Perfect Balance, please use the form in the episode caption to submit your question or topic. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please subscribe to Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat to receive updates about future episodes. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.